0: If you have your Bibles this morning, we are in uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5. I'm not quite sure how many of you were here the last time we had looked at this passage. uh, I preached on Matthew 5 and... July, uh, the first part, uh, had not had the opportunity yet to continue on, uh, so we're going to give a little bit of an overview, refresh everybody's memory as to what we were talking about, and then move forward. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 deals with the Sermon on the Mount, it's one of the most well-known passages in Scripture, also one of the most widely misunderstood passages of Scripture. John Stott said this, he said, The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood, and certainly it is the least obeyed. It is the nearest thing to a manifesto that he ever uttered, for it is of his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. To my mind, no two words sum up its intention better, or indicate more clearly its challenge to the modern world than the expression, Christian counterculture. What we have when we go through uh, the Beatitudes, when we read the words of Christ as he's talking to his disciples, is the life of a Christian. It's the life of a person who has yielded himself or herself to the Lord. Who has said that, God, I am giving my life over to you. It's no longer my life that I live, but it's your life. It's what you want me to do. So it's a matter of a heart's condition as we look at this, as we read through this, as we open up some of what Christ is talking about. I want that to to be on the forefront of your minds. Uh, That this is a passage to believers, for believers, for the purpose of reminding them of where they have come from, of what God continually wants from us, and how we should live our lives. They all build upon one another. They're not just some random sayings. They're not just uh, independent of one another. It's not as if we can read one and think, okay, we'll set that aside. We'll go to the next one. Okay, I understand that one. I'll set it aside, but Each one continues to build upon the other in succession with one another. It's to be understood as a whole and not just in its separate statements. So if you can read along with me uh, this morning, we're going to read through uh, up to verse 12, and then we're going to take a look at them a little deeper. for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And the last time uh, in July when we preached on this, we got through the first Beatitudes, and so I'm just going to pass through both of them quickly. But we need to understand what is going on as we continue to move forward. As I said, they build upon one another. And so in verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What we had talked about was what poor in spirit meant. What exactly was Christ getting at when he said poor in spirit? We said it wasn't about those who are essentially poor physically. It's not poverty. It's not being hungry. It's not going without. But being poor in spirit literally meant a recognition of that we come to God with absolutely nothing. So when we talk about uh, the righteousness of God, as pastor has been going through the book of Galatians, and we've been talking about righteousness, as we've been talking about having the righteousness of Christ apply to us. We talk about that we didn't come to God with anything in exchange for that. We didn't say, God, I will offer you this, and in exchange, you give me Christ's righteousness. That's not what the scripture says. The scripture says we come to God destitute, with nothing, without anything to offer him to say, I am worthy of receiving this because I have done such and such. But scripture tells us that none of us seeks after God, no one really cares about God, but it's God who first moved towards us, God who first made the first step to us through his son, who called us to himself and enabled us to respond to him. The Holy Spirit quickened our spirit, made us alive. Romans tells us we're dead in our trespasses, we're dead in our sins, And so we needed new life. The Spirit does that for us. He quickens our spirit, makes alive, comes alive, enables us to respond. And so what Christ is talking about is blessed are the poor in spirit. It's that we have this continual recognition that it's not anything from us. It's not anything that we did to earn salvation. It's not anything we did to earn the grace or mercy of God. It's not anything that we can do on our behalf. That God would praise us for, and the reason why we are blessed, the reason why we can be happy, and I guess I should also talk about that. Blessed here uh, continually before each beatitude, blessed, 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 blessed. Blessed is talking about not just subjectiveness, not just you know how we feel. Sometimes we're happy, right? Sometimes we're sad. we're angry. I see all of those emotions in my daughter in the first five minutes of the day. (laughs) It's not not subjective. It's not based on the circumstances around us. It's not based on what he is talking about, what Christ is talking about when he uses the word blessed. It's an objective state. The ESV study Bible puts it this way. Blessed is more than a temporary or circumstantial feeling of happiness. It is a state of well-being in relationship to God that belongs to those who respond to Jesus' ministry. It's not temporary, meaning it's not fleeting. It's not here one day, gone tomorrow, but it's an ever-going-on process. It's not a circumstantial feeling of happiness. But it's a state of well-being, a continual state of well-being, something we have. Jesus is making the objective statement here. He's declaring not what they may feel like, but what God thinks of them and what on that account they are. What God feels about you and me, he says, those who are poor in spirit, those who recognize They come to me with nothing. They are blessed, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so we talked about the reward there. He says, begins with, blessed is this, and we will receive this. They will receive the kingdom of heaven. So those that know God, who have come to know God, who have been made alive in their spirits, who recognize their poorness before him, who recognize that they have nothing, who recognize that they are in need of a Savior, we get... Christ's righteousness applied to us when we accept the things that he has taught us. We get his righteousness, and because of that, we receive the kingdom of heaven. We receive everlasting life. We were taken from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So when we talked about blessed are those who mourn, sometimes we think, well, mourning is not always a very particular happy thing. Uh, Even in this church, a few of the families have experienced loss recently, uh, who are still mourning the loss of loved ones, fathers, um, aunts, very close friends. Uh, if you were listening to the the news recently and you heard about the missing hunter in Sullivan County, um, I knew the grandson. I actually went out on that Monday to help search. He's experiencing loss. When he talks about blessed are those who mourn, is he talking about that type of mourning? Is he talking about mourning the loss of a loved one? Is he talking about other things? And as much as the saying is true, blessed are those who are mourn for they shall be comforted that is true when we do mourn when we mourn the loss of a loved one god is there the spirit is there to give us comfort but that's not what he's getting at in this verse what he's specifically talking about and it's the stages of us as christians when we first recognize we're poor in spirit when we need christ what does he tell us when we recognize that we come to him with nothing it's because of Something in our lives. It's because something has separated us from Christ. That in our lives is called sin. The Bible is very particular in that, in that we God has nothing to do with sin. There's no sin in God. He is perfect. Even as we sang this morning, you are perfect in all of your ways. But because we rejected God back In the beginning of creation, when Adam and Eve chose to disobey and humanity fell, each one of us has followed in that footsteps, and we have been disobedient to God. We have said, God, we want our own way. pastor last week was talking about that in one of the verses, I believe it was in Psalms, uh, talking about we stand firm where we're at, right? And we have this big old embossed shield, and we're shaking our fist at God and have not want nothing to do with Him. But when we realize, when God breaks through, when the Spirit breaks through, when He gives us this realization, we recognize we need Christ, but we recognize something separates us from Christ. So when we're mourning, our mourning is over our sin. Our mourning is over what separates from, us from God. Our mourning is over our continual disobedience to God. Our mourning is over the way that the world is going. As you read the Old Testament, you, especially the prophets, you'll read sections of them mourning over what Israel has become. How good and how great God is, and yet, God, why are the Israelites doing this? Why have they forsaken your ways? Why are they going off and doing all of these things? And the prophet mourns. Christ tells us the same thing. That we should be mourning the sin in our lives, that we should be mourning the sins in our communities, the sins in our nation, the sins in our world. God calls us to confess our sins. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. He wants us to confess our sins before him and find comfort in that, knowing that what? He has taken away our sins. That is where we find our comfort. Our comfort is found in the fact that Christ paid the penalty. He paid the sacrifice necessary. That God demanded, that a righteous judge demanded, that scripture says God just couldn't pass over. He couldn't just say, oh, I'll forget about it this time. Even the sins of the Old Testament, even the Israelites, as they were following God and all of his commands, they needed to sacrifice animals. And there were specific sacrifices or food offerings or grain offerings, depending upon what the sin was. And once a year, the great high priest would go into the holies of holies to offer a sacrifice for all the nation of Israel. And all of that was... ...to show what was going to come. It wasn't as if God was saying, yes, I accept that. That is going to cover your sins. You are good. What it was was looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice that was to come, which was Christ. And it's because of what he has done... ...that God was... ...considering them faithful. It was on Christ's righteousness... God knew what was going to happen. Their faith was in what was to come. Our faith in is what has already happened. And now we look forward to a new heavens and a new earth, a new coming. When we will be rid of the sin all around us. One of the uh, things I read last time, and I want to read again this time before we continue on and get into the third and fourth beatitude this morning, but one of the things that John Stott had said concerning mourning, and it continues to uh, speak to to my heart um, because it's true. He says this, he says, I fear that we evangelical Christians by making much of grace sometimes thereby make light of sin we elevate god's grace as, you know god covers sin right he covers a multitude of sin but sometimes in our efforts to comfort people and to provide that we we kind of overlook it without actually saying okay we need to you need to confess your sin you need to acknowledge your sin you need to be mourning over your sin all right there needs to be a desire for righteousness which we're going to get into but we make light of sin. He says there is not enough sorrow for sin among us. We should experience more godly grief of Christian penitence. Like that sensitive and Christ-like 18th century missionary to the American Indians, David Brainerd, who wrote in his journal on October 18th, 1740, he said this, In my morning devotions, my soul was exceedingly melted and bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness. Stott says, Tears like this are the holy water which God is said to store in his bottle. So the question I had asked, and I continue to ask even of myself, are we mourning over our sin, or are we complacent in it? Are we content to say, I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm saved. I know I messed up. God, he's just going to take care of it. He's already taking care of it. I don't need to worry about it. Or do we? are we going to have the same attitude of God, of Christ, and knowing that all right, he doesn't take any of our sins lightly. Christ paid the penalty for us. Are we taking advantage of that? Christ is calling us to to mourn our sins and to be genuinely repentant to turn away from our sins and turn to Christ. He said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Our comfort is in that God has given us his comfort because of what he has provided for us in Christ. He has given us Christ's righteousness applied to our lives. We have been given eternal life. But not only that, not only those things, he has also given us his Holy Spirit. Uh, Christ, before he left, said, I must go so that another may come just like me, but he would be with all of you. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit that continues to work on our hearts to convict us of our sin, to turn us closer to the Father, but we must listen, and we must obey. But he gives us comfort. He comforts us in knowing what God has done on our behalf. And so we get into verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. John Stott earlier when I was reading one of his things said one of the best ways that he can describe this passage was Christian counterculture. Opposite of what the current culture says. So uh, in thinking about this verse, blessed are the meek, or any of these things uh, for that matter. It is counterculture to think that these things should be praised, should feel blessed should be happy about these things. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who meek. Who would really say that in the real world? Who would think those things in the in out in everyday life? And that's why he used that word Christian counterculture because when we know Christ it can completely changes our mindset. It completely changes our viewpoint of the world, of how things are, of how things Should be. And it changes us to the viewpoint of God. And so when he says here, Blessed are the meek, the world would think those that are meek are people that get walked on, walked over, trampled, beaten down, taken advantage of, naive. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary dictionary defines meek as this, enduring injury with patience and without resentment. It also defines it as deficient in spirit and courage, submissive. Or it also defines it as not violent or strong, moderate. However, if you look at that then next to uh, what the Bible would say about Uh, what meekness has to say, would say these things from Harper's Bible Dictionary. The quality characteristic of humility when coupled with gentleness. The meek person not only does not threaten or challenge others, but accepts others openly and confidently. Some examples of this are Moses. Moses was a very meek man more than any people who are on the face of the earth. Or even if you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus' teacher in Matthew 11:29. 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, meek. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. What meekness entitles or entails is, is a, a few things. It's essentially a true view of oneself. The meek person knows who they are, readily accepts who they are. It's humble they're humble about it, they're gentle about it. It goes in line with being poor in spirit, mourning our sin. It's having a right recognition of self before God. God, I am a sinner. I am in need of you. I have forsaken your ways. I have transgressed your commandments. I confess those things to you, that I am in need of you. I'm mourning over those things. Uh, but it's one thing to us to readily accept that but it's also another thing to also be meek in the face of somebody else telling us that <clears throat> uh, dr martin lloyd join says says this about it meekness denotes a humble and gentle attitude to others which is determined by a true estimate of ourselves It's comparatively easy to be honest with ourselves before God. So when you're alone in a room with God and you're just talking, it's real easy to be open and honest, right? No other ears are listening. Nobody else is hearing what is being said. It's just you and God. So we acknowledge before God and before ourselves to be sinners in his sight. But how much more difficult is it to allow other people to say things like that about me? Someone were to tell you, or or how, even if something minor, but uh, somebody mentions something to it, do you readily accept it, or do you automa- Are you automatically offended? Like, what did you just say to me? We all of us prefer to condemn ourselves rather than to allow somebody else to condemn us. I think that's true. The man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. This makes him gentle, humble, sensitive, patient in all of his dealings with others. So meekness is, is twofold in that it's one. One, it's about ourselves. It's about recognizing who we are before God. It's about acknowledging that to God readily accepting the grace and forgiveness given to us by God, but it's also in how then we treat others, um, being gentle and humble. One of the things about that, we're going to look at uh, some verses coming up about what meekness looks like. We're going to look at uh, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can, can start going to there. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, looking at what meekness looks like, very well-known passage. But when we talk about uh, in relation to others, sometimes when we're going through life and we're talking with other people, uh, we need to recognize and understand that not everybody is at the same place we are. So in, in our faith journey, some people are further along. So some of the things that you have learned or maybe you're being taught now, they're they're not ready for yet. Or maybe they're further along than you are, and maybe it's you that's not quite ready for some of the things that they are. But meekness has to do with being gentle and humble towards others, remembering where you have come from. And what was that? That was a sinner, a uh, sinner against God, not for God, you know, separated from him, doing our own thing, being selfish, wanting what's best for us, not caring about others, and then being transferred into the kingdom of God, and those things change. It's not just about my welfare, but it's about the welfare of others. It's about the community that we experience. Uh, We see that best at church and other places. Uh, It's a right recognition of who we are. It's an understanding of knowing where we have been, where we are now, and where we are going. So when we look at Philippians chapter 2, talking about meekness, the person who exemplified meekness the best was Christ. He best exemplified what a meek attitude was. And so we're going to look at this Christ's example of humility. Philippians chapter 2 verse 1. Paul writes this to the Philippian church. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's, he's just told them, do all of these things. And then he, he puts the rest of, of the word of God, as it cuts deep to the heart, right in there. And says, be, as this is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. So God, or Jesus, being born in human likeness, taking on the flesh, being fully God, fully man, all right, had the ability to do whatever he desired, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be something to be grasped. He wasn't looking at his own selfish desires. We see that best pastor had just talked about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he's praying and he's sweating blood and he's asking the Lord, let this cup pass from me if it be, but not my will, but your will be done. He wasn't focused on himself. He was focused on what his father wanted. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself Amen indeed. There is no greater example of a meek man than Christ. A very strong man. The world might look at might not look at it that way, but we know what he needed to endure, and it was much more than just the physical pain that he went through while here on earth for that, the, the weight of the world, the sin of the world was upon his shoulders. He endured much more than just the physical pain that he received, and he did all of that on our behalf. And it's not because God needed to do those things. Like we said, it, when we recognize that we're poor in spirit, it's not as if God is looking down and saying, they're, they're pretty good. I think they deserve it. Or they're pretty good and I think they deserve it. All right. When, when you look down, none of us seek after God. None of us wants God. It's the fact that he is merciful. It is the fact that he is gracious to us. The fact that he shows us compassion. That he is a loving God because all of us deserve hell. Every single one of us deserves hell. But in his loving kindness, he provided Christ. And Christ, being obedient to death, provided a way so that some may get to experience everlasting life. That's a loving God. So when we think about meekness, when you think about living it out in your lives, what we need to look towards is as you read the scriptures and you go through, especially the life of Christ, as you read through, look at how he interacts with people. Look at how he lived his life. Alright, even and and sometimes I need this, you know, the kids, they bug my nerves, and sometimes you just want to ship them off. And I'm always reminded <laughs> At that moment in time, it is definitely true. I feel that way. I might not feel that way the whole time, that's why it's subjective. It's my circumstances that you're in. Objectively, I love my kids. I'll do anything for my kids, as many of you would as well. But I'm reminded of, you know, when Jesus is out preaching and teaching his disciples are there, and they have all these crowds with them, and the little kids are there, and the disciples just want to, you know, push. no, let the little kids come to me. Um, Jesus loved everybody. It didn't matter who they were, from the littlest one to the oldest one. It didn't matter whether they had Diseases, what they looked like, what they were able to do, what they could provide for him—they couldn't do anything for him. But Jesus lived his life in service to others, in obedience to God the Father. And so, when we think about meekness and living out meekness in our lives, we should look towards that and try to uh, exemplify that in our own lives. And He said, "Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth." The world will tell us that the the meek—they just get trampled on. There's What's the point? If you want to get ahead in life, you need to take what you want by whichever means necessary. Um, But God says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. It's counterintuitive to the world. If you look at me with Psalm 37, go to Psalm 37, starting in verse 1. One of the things that you sometimes hear from people as they look at the world going on around them, and we see all of the, um, just the tragedy, uh, inequalities in the world, uh, the suffering that takes place, the, and specifically at the hands of people that are evil, uh, people that have done atrocious things, uh, people that, uh, as I said, they, they do whatever they can, whether it's lie, cheat, steal to get ahead, uh, whatever they can do. Uh, scripture says this, Fret not yourself, Psalm 37, starting in verse 1, Fret not yourself because of evil do- doers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Psalm 37 right there gives us an apt description of what being meek was, trust in the Lord, do good. All of those things that he talked about is the attitude, is the heart of a person that is meek. And our concern is not with what everybody else is doing, but our concern is how we are living our lives. It's not whether somebody else is prospering, but how are we living our lives? And he says, the meek shall inherit the land. And it goes to to remembering that this world is just temporary. This world is not going to be here forever. Very thankfully, right? I, with everything that's going on, Scripture tells us we are waiting for a day where a new heavens and a new earth will come, where there is no sin. There, there is no tears. When we get to heaven, all of, all of this will just be gone from our memories. We get to experience the joy and love of God forever. And there's no pain there there's complete joy. And that's what we look forward to. And so when it talks about inherit the land, it may not be that we inherit the land here and now, in today, right at this moment. If we go out today, do all of these things, and then we look up at God, God, where, where's my inheritance? It's not like that. It's not this instantaneous thing. It says, but those who wait for the Lord, those who are waiting on him in his timing, not our timing, We're very impatient people. In 2 Peter, it talks about that, about the patience of God. You know that God is a patient and long-suffering God and that He has yet to come because His desire is that more people would come to know Him before Christ comes back. That means there's still time for family members, for mothers or fathers or grandparents or even your grandkids. Your nieces, your nephews, your aunts, your friends down the street, the neighbors next door—there's still time for them to come to know Christ, and that is a, a great opportunity for us to witness and, and to to be a light in a dark world. So when he says to inherit the land, blessed are those who uh, more. Are, sorry, blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It is a wonderful thing. 2 Peter 3.13, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So as you're looking at all of these things, one, we we recognize that we're poor in spirit. We recognize that we're destitute, that we are in need of a Savior. We realize why we need that Savior is because of our sin that has separated us from it. So we mourn over our sin. We find comfort in what Christ has done. We are meek, we're gentle, we're humble, we're not puffed up, we're not proud, but we're the opposite because of what Christ has done for us. For us on our behalf and he asks that of us and as we do those things he also puts a desire within us for a hunger and a thirst when we come to know christ and and all of these things should be continual in our lives it's not a one and done thing Um, we still have sin in our life we still need to be reminded that we came to god with nothing we can still offer nothing it's only by the power of god working through us because of Christ that we please God, it's still all of him in us and through us. Um, It's a recognition of that, yes, we still sin. We still need to be mourning our sin. We still should not be taking light of our sin. We still need to remain meek in our lives for our entire lives. And also our thirst and hunger for righteousness should be a perpetual state of being for us can you ever get enough? ask yourself, can you ever get enough? He says, they shall be satisfied, for they shall be satisfied. And again, this is another thing where our satisfaction doesn't, there is an immediate satisfaction. That is true. When we come to the Lord, when we seek out his scriptures, When we thirst for righteousness and justice, there is a satisfaction knowing that God is in control. But the ultimate satisfaction, the ultimate um, expression of this is not going to be found until the new kingdom, until the new heaven and the new earth. But one of the things about a hunger and thirst for righteousness, when we talk about a life that has been changed by the, Spirit of God living within us, when we become followers of Christ, when we devote our lives to that, he has done amazing things in us. In Corinthians, it says, we are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And so as such, things that were of the old self are being pushed, pushed out. They're gone sometimes they want to make their way back in, but we need to push them out. So when we talk about this, one of the things that, um, talking about counterculture, as we live our lives, as we go about our lives, uh, one of the things many people in this world are trying to accumulate are material possessions, right? We try to work for specific things. People have this specific thing, okay, you know, this is, this is what I want. I want. I want this boat or something. And immediately what popped in my head was from the uh, movie with um. I can't even think of it now. The marriage, the Christian marriage movie. Help me out. Fireproof. That's it. Fireproof. Where he's got, he's saving his own money. Separate from his wife. You know, he's he in the movie. He's like, I've worked for this. You know, I'm saving up. He's got this picture of this boat. This is what he's working towards. This is what that money is going to go towards and yet her father is in need of care and um, in need of a a new specialized bed and different things and there is money that could cover those costs but for the husband that's my money. Material things. Towards the end of the movie what happens is his mind has been changed by God and What was once his focus of material things was now on spiritual matters. His marriage, his father-in-law, the things that God wanted him to do. And so he took all that money and he put it towards uh, the new medical things that his father-in-law needed. And it's just a, a slight picture of what God does in our lives. He takes the things that we once cared for most. Because out of our own selfish ambition, our own things that we wanted, and he changes what those things are to more spiritual things. There is an appetite change in our lives when we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And when we talk about righteousness, there's uh, three specific things that uh, are in, in mind when we talk about righteousness. There's the legal righteousness, which Pastor Jacob has been talking about, as we mentioned earlier. That's where God has specifically declared you righteous. Not by your righteousness, but by Christ's righteousness being applied to your life. So there's an the immediate position point where once we were separated from God, but then God says, okay, I'm declaring you righteous right now before me because of Christ, you have eternal life. You get to be in heaven. That doesn't change then there's moral righteousness there's right character there's integrity and then there's social righteousness justice for the community uh, as we look out into the world and when we hunger and thirst for righteousness these all these three things can come into view that we hunger and thirst for righteousness in our own lives to become more like Christ each and every day the sanctification process, becoming more like Christ, that should be on our hearts. We should have a hunger and a thirst for that. Two, we should have a hunger and thirst in our own lives to model right behavior, integrity. Uh, just the the other day, I was telling my wife, you know, I went to the store. I bought uh, eight pairs of new panties and new work jeans, and they were having a good sale. So I went in, the guy rang me up. I hadn't known what all the prices are. I always like to check my receipt just to make sure the sale price is on there. And I'm like, there's only seven there. At that moment, I could have just said, okay, see you later. He wouldn't have known. He thought he rang up all the the pairs of pants. Who knows? I know. And who else? God. God knows. So you're, you're at a crossroads there where you think, okay, you have that old self. And he says, man. I don't have to pay 10 extra dollars. You know, 10 bucks, I can use that money somewhere else. (laughs) Right? 10 bucks, 10 bucks. Use it somewhere else. Or you can do the right thing and mention it. So I said, you forgot to uh, ring up a pair of my pants. There's eight there. So he recounted and said, yep, you're right. And the funny thing is he said, thank you for being honest. And it's sad that he has to say that because most people aren't honest. But when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's not just uh, about... Christ's righteousness being applied to us but it's also about right living in our lives as a christian that what we show other people it's not just something that is a facade that we just put on a nice face for people and we go home and we don't really but if we're truly changed by christ it affects our daily life it affects everything about us and so it's about moral uh character right justice integrity But it's also about social issues, social justice. And you hear that a lot in in the news today, social justice. But uh, specifically what we're talking about is uh, as Scripture talks about things. So one of the big social justice issues, abortion. What does God say about life? The sanctity of life. It's wrong. It's murder. It is. God cares about those things. We should care about those things. He cares about inequality. All of us are the same. Nobody is better than anybody else. All right? Doesn't matter your skin tone. Doesn't matter your uh, language. Doesn't matter what part of the world you grew up in. We're all from the same two people. All right? God created Adam and Eve. We're all descendants of them. We're all of the same human race. There's no distinction between. Any of us, God sees us the same. We need to also be aware of those things and fight for social justice on those fronts as well. And there's other things as well. So when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's not, as I said, it's not just the righteousness that has been to apply to us, but it's a continual daily living. I'm going to end uh, here with a quote by Martin Luther. Um, And he says this, talking about a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Martin Luther expressed this concept with his customary vigor. The command to you is not to crawl into a corner or into the desert, but to run out. If that is where you have been, and to offer your hands and your feet and your whole body, and to wager everything you have and can do, What is required, he goes on, is a hunger and thirst for righteousness that can never be curbed or stopped or sated. One that looks for nothing and cares for nothing except the accomplishment and maintenance of the right, despising everything that hinders this end. If you cannot make the world completely pious, then do what you can. What he says is we have an obligation as Christians to live in the world. And, and scripture tells us that, be in the world but not of the world, meaning not following their ways, following their practices, having the same mindset, but living amongst them but knowing that we are different, that we have been changed by God, and that is what uh, the Beatitudes are talking about, the change that has taken place in us because all of these things that we have learned and continually learned, continually experience. Let's pray. Father, this morning as uh, we have read your word and gone over your word, I pray that you would continue to speak to us as we go home, as we dwell on these things, as we think on these things, as your spirit reminds us of these things this week. We pray that these attitudes and this mindset that you have set before us would be ours, as Paul had told the Philippian church in talking about the example we have in Christ, having the same mindset that is yours in Christ Jesus. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but consider others better than yourselves. Father, we pray that we would live our lives in service to you and in such that it would be in service to others. That what we claim to be followers of you is not just in name only, uh, but it's in word and in deed. That our lives truly reflect the change that has taken place in us. That We would be lights in a world that is dark, that is in desperate need of you. And we thank you for your continual patience and your long-suffering in knowing that even though we await the day that you will return and we want it to come soon and very soon, Father, we also recognize that there are many people that are in need of hearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would give us the opportunities even this week to to do that. To preach the gospel in the way we live our lives, in the way we speak, in the way we interact. And to be bold in our speech with others. Say, look, let me tell you about a man named Christ, and what he has done for you and for me, but to do it with a meek spirit, Father, with gentleness and respect. And it's not easy, but you have called us to that. So we pray you would find us faithful. We pray that you would be with us until we all return again. We pray you'd keep us safe. We pray you'd draw us closer to yourself. And we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.